The preaching of God's Word then is found in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 4 and 5. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 4 and 5. Here again, those two words as Paul is addressing this man who is guilty of scandalous sin. He says, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my Spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan, for the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, I have no doubt but that if you have spoken about discipline, and particularly the greatest form of it in the church, excommunication, you have been met with faces that betray a thought of how cruel such a thing would be to be administered. That if the church were gracious, if the church loved souls, if the church were generous and kind, gentle and loving, and committed to salvation, they would set aside such things. But brethren, if we have our minds renewed by the Scriptures, we see that first, discipline is an ordinance of God. And so such statements are not to be stated against the church, if stated at all, They're to be stated against God, who has so commissioned and ordained these things. But as you dive deeper into the Scriptures, you see not only are those charges unfounded, they are actually ruinous to the good of souls. For as Paul states, the exercise of discipline has for it, among other things, this purpose, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Notice something. It's not just leading up to the exercise of discipline that there's the seeking of salvation, grace, and pardon. It is the days following the administration of discipline that is seeking the good and salvation of one who is brought under it. Brethren, you see more in the chapter than we'll consider here as well because it's also for the good of the church. And so, as Paul says... A little leaven leaveneth the whole. And he calls for them to be those that would put away, verse 13, from among yourselves that wicked person. Why? Well, not only for that person's good, but for the congregation's good, for the church of Christ's good. And so, brethren, as we come perhaps with varied thoughts and questions, let us come to look more fully at the Lord's ordinance of discipline. You'll notice the context before we dive more deeply addresses the church. And so remember what this church is called when Paul addresses them, verse 2 of chapter 1, as the church of God which is at Corinth. Why do we start here? Because embedded in that statement is the very foundation of all that's taking place. Because what you and I see as the word church is a word in the Greek which means those called out. Those who are called together. And this places the church's identity in a gracious standing before God. We're in the world as it were, like the world as it were, no different from the world as it were, but what happened? God called them out of the world. He called them unto Himself. When we speak of the church, we ought to have this in our minds. 
that we are the called out ones. We are those called out of sin, out of death, out of destruction, unto whom? Unto God, the church of God. Notice to them that are sanctified, who are set apart in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. The church has among its characteristics this holiness that we are to live as those set apart unto God. Children, you need to realize this. You may not have professed faith. You may not have said, I trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But you need to see that God has come to you and said, I'm calling you unto myself. I'm going to surround you with promises. I'm going to provide you the means of grace. I'm going to hold forth unto you the good news of a Savior. And I'm calling you to me. I've placed my name upon you. When you get older, understand this. Not only do you have no right to turn from the church, but if you did turn from the church, you bring upon yourselves the lasting wrath of God save that He gives you repentance. Why? Because God has pursued you and drawn you to Himself. And He's given you means of grace to know Him, which is a thing He's not given unto the world. And so notice then, back at our text, that He is speaking to this church and He's addressing this church which has permitted such a sinner as is even more excessive and more heinous than what the world knows. Think of that for a moment. What Paul says in verse 1 of this chapter, that this man is guilty of such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, he's effectively saying this, there is such profanity found in the pure church of God as profanity that is found in the world. And you would think with the disclosure of that, he would then follow up and say, and that explains why you're so grieved. That explains why you're so heavy. That explains why you're so downcast. But he doesn't. He says, here's what's worse. You, the saints of God, are puffed up. You go around and say, we're a company of gracious people. Look how tolerant we are. Look how kind we are. Look how generous we are. And Paul, the apostle of grace, doesn't go and say, well done. Show the world what grace is. He says, this is a travesty. Because you're supposed to be showing the holiness of God to the world. And so he says, as we come to our text, appealing to the authority of Christ in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye, the congregation, are gathered together. And he says what we cannot, and my spirit, his apostolic authority as it were, but notice, with the power, with the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is not tied so much to the apostles' spirit, but rather with the assembling of the church together. When that is done, here are the circumstances. You're to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That's a heavy sentence. It is the heaviest sentence that the church possesses. In the civil realm, the heaviest sentence that the civil state possesses is capital punishment. There's nothing more that can be done after that. 
in the ecclesiastical realm, the church's realm, the heaviest sentence is the cutting off one and putting them outside of the walls of the church and saying, now you're exposed to the judgment of God. Now the protections of the visible church are withdrawn from you and Satan now has his target upon you and you shall know something of, if God so orders it, the ferocity of that great enemy unto the destruction of your flesh. Now, we acknowledge that there is some consideration among others who would say, well, the church has not the authority to deliver such an one unto Satan. That's something peculiar, peculiar to the apostle. But though there are some who hold that, notice here that it's not Paul who's delivering this one. It's those who are gathered who are to deliver such a one. It's they who are delivering him. He's confirming it. He's saying, this is what I've determined. He's saying, this is where I stand. But he's not the one who says, I've delivered him. He's saying, you must do it. You must be the ones who assemble in the name of Christ with the consent indeed of me, an apostle, but with the authority that Christ has vested in His church to put forth this one and cut them off. Now, this expression, deliver unto Satan, does not mean that this person becomes demonically possessed. Rather, it means that as Satan is called the God of this world, and the church is that which has been rescued from the God of this world, is no longer, as it were, under the dominion of the God of this world, Satan. Now they are taken out and put outside the walls of the church. Not the physical walls of a building, but out of the number of the church. They are put, you think of it in the Old Testament, outside the camp. They are not to be in the fellowship where the means of grace are. They're not to be treated as those who are in good standing with the church. There's to be a distance kept. The world shudders at the thought of shunning people. And brethren, we should too, except that the Lord teaches us to shun sin for a purpose. Why is it that we shun sin? Is it because we think we're greater than they are? We're holier than they are? Absolutely not. It's rather so that they would learn that gracious shame, so that though their flesh is destroyed, their spirit may be saved. The purpose of this severe effort is actually gracious. Think of it this way. We may have great concerns with the way our medical world is quick to cut and quick to radiate and quick to do other things. But imagine each of us understands that there are radical measures to be taken when there are truly radical illnesses present. The family and I listening to a story of some Christians in Soviet uh, Romania in the days of uh, the communist uh, days there heard of a woman whose arm was infected with such things that her flesh daily was falling off and the wound had to be freshly addressed throughout the day. Well, she had such cancer that it was deteriorating that could have been helped if the communist and the socialist doctors who wouldn't stand uh, or stood against the church would rather care for her and excise the tumor so that her body would recover. Well, this is what's going on in the church. The church is cutting off 
for a purpose, both for itself, but brethren, understand this, here's the wonder of God's grace, as well as for the good of the other. She then, or he then, as here, stands exposed so that that one under discipline would come to see how great the need is for salvation, that the Spirit may be saved. What does this come together to teach us? Well, it shows us that this which is called excommunication is the putting away, and understand this, of an impenitent sinner, a sinner who doesn't repent, putting them away from the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, exposing them to judgments outside of the church, and seeking that person's restoration. Now, before we think, well, this is pretty isolated, we have the essence of this again and again throughout Scripture. Notice three such examples. Matthew chapter 18, the difference being that this begins with a private offense, but escalates to a public offense. In Matthew 18, the context is a brother sinning against another. You're to go to him, show him his fault, and so on. If he shall hear thee, verse 15, thou hast gained thy brother. So this isn't a public scandal, this is a private issue. And then what happens if it fails? Well, if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. What if that fails? Verse 17, if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. Notice the assembly. If he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Brethren, whose words are these? These are none other than the Lord's words. These are the instructions of the Lord Himself, saying that if there is not repentance, there is to be a cutting off. Now, for you and me, we may struggle to understand this notion of heathen and publican, heathen being like the nations. Remember that Christ is still operating, as it were, in that time when the Israel was distinct from the nations. And so he's saying you're to put them out and you're not to treat them as one with whom there is peace and so on. You're to treat them as one who stands estranged from God. That's the notion. As a publican, what does that mean? It's not saying that every tax collector today is a wicked man, but in his day, in their days, they were scoundrels. They were abusing the people of God. And so they were to be treated in the same fashion. Notice as well Titus in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Here you have Paul again, now addressing Titus. And he says there at chapter 3, verse 10, a man that is an heretic, after the first and second admonition, reject, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. Man that is an heretic, one that is dividing from the truth of God. You're to admonish him once, you're to admonish him again, and then what? You're to reject him. You're no longer here. You're no longer among us. You can see this as well in Romans and chapter 16. There are other passages, but as time passes on here, but one more, Romans and chapter 16, and there at verse 17. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them 
which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. They're to be cut off. Brethren, it is not one instance among few. It's one instance among many that is before us, this exercise of church discipline. Here then, three things to help us better understand. Firstly, the subjects of discipline. Secondly, the exercise. And thirdly, the purpose. The subjects, the exercise, and the purpose. Now, who is it that is to be subjected to discipline? Well, you'll notice the text is quite clear in this, as well as Matthew and and Paul's other writings, the subjects firstly are considered as church members. They are those who are identified with those called out by God from the world. And so Paul actually says, listen, you have no ability to discipline those who are outside of the church. That's not your concern. He even says, so far as to say, listen, I've said, don't keep company with fornicators. I don't mean don't have relationships with fornicators who aren't in the church, I'm saying rather with those who are in the church, those who are visible expressions of the church. And so understand this, that discipline by the church concerns members of the church. This is why it's not only communicant members, but baptized members who are liable to be disciplined. Because it's not one's profession of faith, It's rather one being called out in covenant with God. And so, though there are degrees of discipline and other such things, we see here, as Paul is addressing it, that it's those who are among the church, within the church, identified in the visible number of God's people. But though discipline may be, if circumstances are such, be applied to those within the church, it is focused only upon those who are sinning in the church. And as the greatest censure is before us of excommunication, it is those who are scandalously sinning. This is what Paul's point is when he addresses this man who has such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles. And so it's not just, well, I think that you've had impure thoughts, or I'm even sure that you've had impure thoughts, or I think that you may be doing something that's wicked, or I know because all men sin, you're doing something that's wicked. It's those whose sins are manifest and stand, as it were, open and public unto the world. But it's not only that. It's those who shut their ears. It's those who harden themselves, remember Numbers 15, who sin presumptuously. It's that they sin with the hand lifted up against God and said, I will not repent. I will not turn back. I will not humble myself. And this is what the man is doing. The man is going on and on and on with it. And so Christ, through Paul, is calling the church to address this man. And so church members who scandalously sin and shut their ears against the Lord's counsel and admonition are those under whom this most severe form of church discipline is to be given. You see that, don't you, in Matthew 18, right? Even though it's a private sin, what happens? There are steps taken. So take with you two or three witnesses. You know, this man 
has stolen something from me. I've gone to him. He's not willing to say that he's going to give it back. Two or three witnesses come along and you go to the person and say, listen, you know, that's mine. I know it's yours. We'll give it back. I'm not giving it back. Now two or three are there. What happens? He doesn't repent. They go to the church and say, this brother, if any man be called a brother, this person who's a member of the church has been addressed once and now twice in the presence of others. And so he comes. they come now to the church. And the church now takes it up and says, brother, you're a member of the church of God. These things ought not so to be. And he doesn't hear the church. The church doesn't say, well, we've done our best. Christ says, cut the man off. Cast him out. He's to be no longer accounted in good standing in the church. When we see this, we get an understanding that those who are to be brought under discipline as church members are not only guilty of sin, but they're guilty of what is known as contumacy. What's contumacy? Contumacy is the rejection of the authority calling them to repentance. It's the stopping of your ears. It's the brazen boldness that says, I'm not going to listen to you. You can see this, of course, in a number of ways, civilly as well as in the family. You know, if your child sins against you, and at the first warning and admonition, they confess and so on, there's the reestablishing of peace. But if your child, after perhaps mom has said, listen, you're not to do that, and mom tells dad, and now dad comes to son or daughter and says, you've disobeyed mom, and in so doing, you're disobeying me. And the son or daughter says, I don't care. You know, there's greater discipline that's administered. The same is true in the church or in the state, that something that is smaller, as higher authorities address it, if the person continues, there are greater measures of discipline administered. Well, what's true in the world is true in the church in this way. That what could have been addressed by the simple relenting over a private affair has disclosed rather this contumacious, this rebellious, this presumptuous, this high-handed standing against God. And so God, then not willing to tolerate such high-handedness in His church, is now bringing forth discipline. But brethren, notice the difference between Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. There's not a private offense here. There is a public scandal that's broken out. And so though there are steps to be taken, it's not as if someone in secret goes and this and that. Paul says, this as a public scandal is known, therefore the church in public is to address it and bring about this discipline. This brings us then secondly to the exercise of church discipline. And notice that in the first place, the exercise of church discipline is to be done by royal that is the highest authority. In the text, verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Realize this. Church discipline is not properly church discipline. It's fundamentally Christian discipline. Christ is disclosing by means of the church His revealed will regarding that person. Are we saying then that church discipline is on par with the authority and inspiration of Scripture? No. 
What we're saying is, it's the acting out of that authority that is given in the Scriptures. And so Christ says, what is bound on earth is bound in heaven. And though some abuse what that means, what's being said is, what is there on earth displayed is indicative of what's taking place in heaven. How can we be sure that that's to be the case in earthly administrations of church discipline? Only insofar as we take heed to the Word of God. Brethren, this is one reason why it is a wicked crime for the church to invent laws and regulations for the church. For pastors to come and say, here's the way we're going to worship God. Here's what you have to do for piety. This is what you need to do in this way and that way. And we multiply rules and so on. And then what happens is these multiplied rules, contrary to, in addition of the Word of God, start to take the focus and removes our focus from the King. But brethren, when we are fully submitting to the Word of God, and it alone is our standard, then it is we're able with simplicity to submit ourselves to the royal authority that is given there. This is why the doctrine of sola scriptura, by the Scripture alone, is a doctrine worth your death. This is why the martyrs in the 14th, 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries for being guilty of nothing else than having the Word of God, were willing to be put to death because they realized this is the authority of the King. This is why churches who hold fast the truth of God's Word are jealous to ensure that the Word of God saturates the whole of a service and the whole of a family and the whole of a soul because the Word of God possesses that royal authority of Christ, the King. We can ask yourselves, you here are American citizens, do you have a king? And you better answer, most certainly you do. Because you have a king who reigns in heaven. You have the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, civilly, we don't have a king. But a greater and far uh, more glorious authority is over and above the church, which is Christ. And this is what Paul appeals to in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So brethren, understand this. Tomorrow, perhaps, someone will ask you, you know what happened in church yesterday? And you might say, listen, we heard a sermon on excommunication. Oh, I thought you were a Christian. You know, I thought you were gracious. I thought you were committed to forgiveness. And what you need to be able to say is, not only am I committed to forgiveness, but my King whose ordinance it is, is committed to forgiveness. What we start to see, in other words, is this. When we understand that the authority by which this ordinance is exercised is none less than Christ's, we start to see that it is full of a gracious purpose as well. We'll get to that more fully. But notice, it's by Christ's authority, and it's administered publicly. So notice, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together. You heard the parallel of that in Matthew 18. Tell it to the church, right? The assembled authorities and the public face of the same. Now, this is instructive because it's not a private affair, church discipline. You know, a private person can't do this. Not even an apostle could. If he could, we would say the words differently. 
I have already delivered him to Satan. He is excommunicated. That's not what he says. He calls upon the gathered church to exercise this ordinance. It's similar to this. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper is not a private ordinance. You know, in spite of the profaning of that ordinance throughout the shutdown of 2020 and onward by having private Lord's Supper, there's no such thing as a private Lord's Supper. It's a public ordinance. It belongs in the public gathering of the church. And so when Paul says, interestingly, later on in this epistle, that when you're gathered together, you're to assemble for the purpose of the Lord's Supper. Notice the same language. When ye are gathered together. There should never be a case when someone says, well, you know, I discipline this person. Well, how did that happen? Well, you know, in my private home, my private thoughts, this took place. It's a public thing. Brethren, what this means as well is, who's a member of the church? Children are members. Men are members of the church. Women are members of the church. Christ is calling upon the church publicly to receive and witness the ordinance. Now think of that for a moment when you think about church thoughts today. Well, you know, preaching is too heavy for children. So we're going to vacate the worship assembly with our children and they're going to be, you know, doing these activities. You know, it's too difficult for them to learn to pray and to listen and so on. So we're going to pull them out of service. Think of this for a moment. The most weighty ordinance, the heaviest sentence is to be public in the face of the whole assembly. If that's the case, surely then every other ordinance is meant for the whole of the assembly as well. But why is that the case? We'll see in a moment more fully. But one reason it's the case is because it's confirming to every member of the church God's claim upon you. It's a testimony of consequence, yes, but inbuilt into that testimony is a testimony of claim. You are mine. It's a warning saying, I don't want you to go this route. Remember in high school, these instances of the police with other agencies would tow in uh, a car that was smashed, wrecked, sometimes the scene of a fatality. They would do it typically around these uh, drunken gatherings that would happen at homecoming and prom and other such things, and there'd be this sort of lesson saying, listen, don't drink and drive. Now, it's astounding, of course, but they're actually those who have raised up against such things and saying, well, that's too difficult for my child to understand. You know, they've caused all of these burdens to them. They need, there needs to be a trigger warning for such things today. All of these things by which we put gloves on and soften the harsh realities of sin. At least in the, that day, there was the wherewithal to say, these people need to see the reality of what can happen if you drive drunk. Now, some of you have seen the same things. And it's an astounding thought. Some of you, like I, have passed scenes where a car has been wrecked and sheets are over it because it's been a fatal accident. And we say, look away. Brethren, I want you to hear this well. God is saying, look at it. God is saying, pay attention. God is saying, children, perk up and see what's taking place. 
It's similar to what the Romans intended by public crucifixions. Now, there was a horror there. But one reason they did that publicly was so that passers-by would see we aren't joking when we say there are consequences to crime. It's what used to be the case in our nation when there were public executions. Why would those things be done? Not because of cruelty, though cruelty could abuse it, but because of care, saying we aren't joking when we say there are consequences to these crimes. Now, today, of course, we live in a world where the civil government is thinking about, well, how can we make life for criminals easier? How can, you know, how can we be sympathetic to them and all of these things? And what happens is criminals get released and crime grows, not just because of those who are released, but because men see this fundamental relationship. There aren't punishments for crime. Now, brethren, what's true in the civil world, each of you knows it. Each of you sees it. It's true in the church. Because sin goes unpunished, sin festers, grows, breaks forth. Now, notice, that's contrary to God's purpose. He's calling them to exercise this this ordinance publicly, And instead of shielding our eyes and saying, it's too much for me, it's too heavy for me, we actually have to see there's a gracious and loving purpose for me, for my children, for my congregation to say, God is serious, sin has consequence. This isn't a joke, it's not a play, it's not a theater, it's something that you need to take on seriously. And it's when you see that, that you'll start to discern the sincerity of God's concern for your soul. That he's saying, look, lest you go and do likewise. Pay attention. How could this have been prevented? Well, if this person had repented, how could this have been prevented if the man hadn't treasured lusts? And so it is for us, publicly. But the exercise goes further that when exercised, it brings about a corporate severing. And so notice here it's that he be delivered, but notice in verse 13, put away from among yourselves. In Matthew 18, let him be as a heathen man and as a publican. They're put out. The church of Christ in various places is considered like a city who has walls and bulwarks, who has a gate of entrance and so on. Other times like a sheepfold, all these different ideas. And what's being said is this, the person is to be placed outside They're no longer in good standing. They're no longer considered one who has the privileges of being reckoned a visible saint. Now, understand this doesn't mean when discipline happens, all of those difficult things now are removed and we just sort of carry on with them and say, well, it's just like any unbeliever. No, they're a marked man, a marked woman. This is why Christ says it's not just putting them out. It's now they're to be treated as a heathen or a publican. Why? Because they haven't repented. Because they stand saying, what I'm doing is acceptable with God. It's not that they say, well, now that they're excommunicated, we can just get on with normal life with them. No. It's actually opposite of that. It's that it's now that there's even a far greater austerity, not in cruelty, but in love for the soul, that interactions with that person 
are simply and solely focused upon the spiritual need of that one. It is the intensifying of spiritual love to that person saying, listen, you have been clicking the revolver at your head over and over and over, and soon enough the trigger's going to pull, the hammer's going to hit, the bullet's going to blow, and your brain's going to be done. I cannot tell you enough how seriously you must take this concern. That's how our approach is to this person. You know, say, well, now that they're excommunicated, we just sit down with them and shoot the breeze and say, well, they're just like any other unbeliever. No. They stand accursed of God in this world. They stand marked out. And Satan now has all protections removed. Now we realize that what that may mean is that the person is left to the hardening of their sin. And so we realize that this visible severing, this visible putting out, is a handing over unto Satan. Children, think of this for a moment. Every child thinks this at one point or another, where they think, you know what, I'd like to camp out at night. And then what happens is you camp out at night, and all of the animal sounds drive you insane. And really, in reality, most likely they're raccoons or possums or who knows what else. But the child hears that through the thin wall of the tent and says, is that a bear? Is that a lion? Is that something else? Right? There's fear that grips the child. So the parents can't sleep because they're nudging. What was that? What was that? What was that? Well, think of this for a moment. If you were to go to the zoo and you were to look at the zoo and say, you know what? This would be a neat place to camp out. Now, perhaps you could get yourself there so long as you're within, of course, those gated places. But what person would say, I'll camp out in the zoo and please open all of the enclosures? Think of that. What would happen? Lions, tigers, bears, snakes, all of these creatures free to roam throughout the zoo. Who would in their right mind say, I'll spend the night there? None of us. All of us would say, by no means. But here's what happens in excommunication. The protections that are provided to the visible church are now removed, and the person stands exposed to that which is far more ferocious than a lion, than a tiger, than a snake, than anything else. Because the purpose of Satan in his mind is to destroy the soul of the sinner. But notice, as we move then, to the purpose of excommunication, there is a gracious purpose. The Lord exposes by this means in order to bring about grace. Notice, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, the way this comes to pass is a number of ways. One is, it teaches. There's the reality of the world crumbling if this is brought to pass. The flesh is being destroyed. It's similar to how the rich young man, or rather the prodigal son, went and he spent all that he had. What happened to his life? He's brought to a point where he sees all of his lusts crumble before him. And he says, what am I doing? Here I am, with no pleasure, with no delight, with my life ruined and wrecked. Here I sit among these creatures which stink, which are unclean, and I'm happy to eat their food. He came to himself. This is what excommunication does when God graciously blesses it. It brings the sinner to the end of himself. 
where they look around and say, what am I doing? What in the world am I finding pleasure in? How can it be that my soul would satisfy itself in that which is impure, unholy, against God? I've sinned against God. Oh, look at this brokenness. Brethren, we ought to be praying earnestly that this would be brought to pass in this one much on our minds. That she would be taught to see all of the pleasures of sin as chaff, as dust, as ruinous, as vexatious, that what used to bring smiles upon her face would bring torment to her soul. And that the Lord would employ even Satan as His instrument to chasten her, that she would come to the realization of who she has sinned against and what she has done to herself. Secondly, it is meant to protect. It's meant to protect, of course, the church. The church is the assembly of saints. It's the assembly of called out ones. I want you to understand this. God wants you to understand this. The administration of discipline is God's care for you. The administration of discipline is God saying your soul, your life, your family, your person is important to me. When the civil realm fails justly to prosecute criminals, what the civil realm is saying is this, law-abiding citizens are not important to us. So when there are judges that take payoffs, when there are judges who don't care, when there are city prosecutors who say we're not going to prosecute criminals, let's be clear what's being said there. What's being said there is this, the law-abiding society, the law-abiding citizens, the welfare of the city, the county, the state, the nation is not important to us. We side with the criminal. Bedlam ensues the breaking out of riots, and so on, spiritually takes part. All of this transpires. Why? Because those who are charged to care for society fail to care for society. Those who are charged as under-shepherds of Christ, when they fail to carry out church discipline, are fundamentally saying this, the souls of God's people are not important to me. I'd rather have some semblance of peace and not take up the nettles and so forth. It is meant to protect. But brethren, let us emphasize this. It is meant to restore that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Don't you care for the one who is broken? Oh, we care for the ones broken. Don't you care then for the sinner who's not broken? Oh, we care for the sinner who's not broken. Think of this for a moment. Who is it in 2 Corinthians who is the focus of repentance and rejoicing? It's the man who was disciplined. When the church rightly administers church discipline, it is demonstrating its love for that person saying, if God shall ever save, it will be as He blesses His ordinance. And this should also fill us with encouragement. Because when administered, we have this to plea before God. God, we have seen it done. We have seen it administered. And we come praying, 
Oh Lord, save this soul in the day of the Lord Jesus. Bring this one to repentance. Some think, well, if the sentence is passed, all hope is gone. Quite the contrary. When the sentence is passed, there's a greater foundation in one sense to be pleading with God. God, you've administered this. It's gone forth. The purpose of this, among other things, is to restore this one. We come and we plead now this most uh, high and holy ordinance to be made effective by your Spirit. Brethren, we should be encouraged because the one of whom Paul writes is the one of whom Paul writes later in 2 Corinthians as one who repented with godly repentance, sorrowed with godly sorrow. The exercise was met with the blessing of the Spirit in the life of that man, and he was brought to repentance. We cannot hide that there is but here's something to consider as we close. When church discipline is rightly administered, though solemn and heavy, the church, far from merely going away wearied and worn, has a reason if their eyes are open to say, God has been good to me. God has been good to my family. God has been good to our home. God has been good to our congregation. Why? Because He's showing, He's teaching us, He's calling us to two things. He's calling us with greater focus to pray for the one under censure and calling us with greater confirmation onto the cultivation of faith and holiness. He's saying, look, pay attention. When I say in my word there are threats, there are consequences, there are afflictions and punishments, I'm not joking. These things are serious. There's a story, I'm sure, in many such places of a soldier in the Civil War, north or south, I don't recall, who signed up and his father was a well-respected general of sorts, if I remember correctly. And he had a lawful way of avoiding the war, but he joined the war and he takes the oath of subscription and these things and he starts to battle. Well, as people discover quite quickly when bullets are whizzing by and friends are being killed and other such things, war is a horrible place. And he fled the army. He gets caught. And if I'm not mistaken, it was his father who had to sign the warrant for his son's capital punishment. Now, brethren, whatever else is to be gleaned from that, it's this. Consequences are real. Consequences aren't just waived. Consequences are real. It may be that one of you here is entertaining secret sin right now. I want you to hear this very clearly. Be sure your sin will find you out. Your sin will be discovered. It may not be discovered in this congregation. It may not be discovered in this lifetime. But the Lord is giving you not only the admonition of His Word, but the display of His holiness in the execution of his ordinance of excommunication. He's saying, pay attention. I'm not joking. Now, when a mom stoops down to a daughter or a son and says, look in mom's eyes, and the face is serious, and there's not a smile on the face, and there's something heavy there, 
and says, pay attention, I'm saying to you very clearly, when mom says this, I mean it. If you don't do this, there's going to be a consequence. The child can't say in sincerity, mom, you don't love me. Because actually what's being expressed is the sincerity of love by the mother. I'm coming to your level. I'm looking you in the face and I'm saying unto you, take heed, pay attention. If this does not change, there will be a consequence. And so it is for us to be grateful that the Lord cares for us in these things. There's another cause here for the humbling of ourselves that we would fall before the Lord and say, O Lord, except Your grace abides with us, we too will go astray. Except Your grace gives us repentance, we would harbor sin, which would break out even in scandalous ways. We didn't touch on it, but look at verse 11. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, that's the sin of this man, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner. A variety of sins. It's not just that we say, well, keep me from fornication. Keep me from coveting. Keep me from this brawling mentality. Keep me from idolatry of any sort. So we humble ourselves and pray, but we also humble ourselves realizing this is the astounding thing. The church who carries out excommunication, sees more clearly the value of the subject of excommunication soul than the subject does. And so we ought to be beseeching, Lord, she doesn't see it. She doesn't understand it. She doesn't perceive it. She goes away with a smile. She goes away with a tear, but she doesn't come with repentance. Whatever it is she doesn't see, she doesn't see this. And so, Lord, we humble ourselves and we cry out, have mercy. But we close with this as the final. There is a cause of hope as this is administered. The hope consists not in the act acted, but in the act owned. We must pray earnestly and fervently in our homes. I doubt not, but that many of you as with our family prayed, morning and evening, every day this week, Lord, grant her repentance. Lord, give her repentance. And brethren, once this is carried out, that's not to stop. It's to continue. Lord, so long as she has life, let the weight of Your grace come to her and call her to repentance. And so we appeal to God that He would be full of grace. And brethren, we appeal to God likewise that He would make effective to ourselves and our children the administration of discipline. Lord, bless my children to see it is a holy society of which they are members. It is a society calling for faith, calling for love, calling for holiness, and convey it unto us by the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me for prayer? Let us pray.